And let's take this as a brief break. And on the other side, we continue certainly with what uh, uh, Bishop Joshua started to touch on, which is, uh, I guess, uh, if ZCC uh, was interested in that kind of thing, they, they'd be able easily to uh, start up a political party. Uh, but I'm going to be speaking to someone uh, who is indeed a part of a political party. He's the deputy president of the United Democratic Movement. His name is Ngamayomzi Kwangwa, and he's going to be joining us from our Cape Town studio. Stay tuned. Take that money. Eh? Take that money. We'd love to uh, hear your perspectives on that one as we continue our conversations this evening. Let us know what you think about uh, what ought to be done. And I certainly uh, share that sentiment Andile Zulu shared with us towards the tail end of that conversation that uh, unless we deal with some of the concrete uh, uh, economic and social conditions that our people are faced with every single day, uh, then they continue to, I guess, be fodder for many of these uh, tricksters. Uh, who present themselves as pastors. But uh, let's shift our attention from that one and to take a look at uh, the electoral promises uh, in the manifesto of the United Democratic Movement. And I'm joined from our studios in Cape Town by the Deputy President of the UDM, is also a Member of Parliament and Chief Whip uh, for the uh, UDM. And uh, good evening to you and thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us. Good evening to you and good evening to the Metro FM listeners and thank you very much for having us on the program. Indeed. Indeed. Before we, we, we get into, uh, uh, I guess, some of the policy promises here, which are numerous and uh, I think we'll have more than enough time to, to unpack some of them. Mm-hmm. I guess when we talk about coalition politics, which is becoming a more widespread reality for many political organizations, many people would suggest that you guys were the first ones to to even, I guess, teach South Africa post-1994 the politics of coalition or in the manner that you you did this. Because many would remember that in KZN, you allowed or assisted the ANC to win that province from the IFP in 2004. And you also, I I guess, were part until recently of a coalition in Nelson Mandela Bay. Let's maybe start off on that front, because uh, certainly with many people touting this election as a tight one, we're bound to see coalitions afterwards. Uh, What is the view of the UDM on coalitions? You've also come out and said that we need a way to regularize these. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, look, when it comes to coalitions as a party, many would recall that uh, during the period when we were still part of the coalition arrangement between the UDM and the, A- and the ANC in, the, in, in KZN, uh, we had been calling even then, as far back as that moment, for political realignment, especially among the opposition. So the discussion around uh, getting ourselves ready for coalition governments uh, we started very early th- with that discussion, and we, we, we located that discussion in particular in a forum which was called at the time the Forum for Opposition Parties in mm. Parliament. And President Bantu Lomisa used to chair that forum, and later on it was also chaired by Ndadele Kota. And uh, those discussions centered around trying to prepare the opposition for instances where they would have to actually join forces and work together, whether at local government level, provincial level, or even at national level. Uh, so the discussion around uh, having coalition governments, especially the Nelson Mandela Metro, uh, were, were things that we prepared a long time ago for them. But I think the challenge mainly perhaps with that one is that because uh, we did not enter into some kind of, even if it was an informal arrangement before elections, we did not agree on core issues before elections of what we would actually co- uh, cooperate around those issues, but we focused more 
on trying to get a government together, especially in some of the municipalities, which worked well until we encountered a number of problems as you are aware. And, you know, when you look at the problems that you faced, in particular Nelson Mandela Bay, and uh, uh, you go to Abantu and you say, look, this is our electoral promise, and uh, if indeed many of these uh, areas that we want to govern in hang in the balance and we must come in and intervene, what, what is the UDM going to bring to some of these coalitions that is going to be fundamentally different to some of the coalitions that it's been party to in the past? Look, I think the first thing we'd have to do this time around is that we're not going to compromise about the character of the organization. What we stand for is a social democratic party and that whoever we are going to cooperate with after the elections would have to make sure that they, they, they embrace what we say. For example, our policies focus on redistribution where we try to redistribute income from the rich to the poor. Mm. That's why we're a social democratic party in line with our values. And that's, those are things we're going to put on the table and put concrete proposals and say, when it comes to this specific issue, this is our proposal. Can we agree or find one another on a specific issue? Because uh, you see, when you go into coalition governments, what, is, what, what makes it very, very challenging is that you, you, are, you, you go into bed, so to speak, uh, with political parties that have a different character. Mm. Uh, they have different ideological leanings and backgrounds. And you are likely to agree to, to agree. You are unlikely rather at, at some point to agree on some of the policy proposals that you put forward. But now the discussion must be more about how do we uh, reach compromises on areas in which we can't agree or if we can't agree completely and entirely on some areas we focus more where we have areas of common interests. Mm. Let's, let's come back to it. Uh, I like the point that you've underscored that EUDM is a social democratic party, uh, which uh, from an ideological perspective would certainly uh, assist us to be able to locate the party and some of its uh, thinking. And we'll come back to some of the issues on economic policy. But one of the other things that I, I found interesting with Manifesto here in Uchau is, is around this uh, um, uh, issue of succession planning and of course uh, being a modern <laughs> political party as you position yourselves there many people might be asking themselves that uh udm all the way out in the 90s in rolf mayor and we still have bandu olomisa now from a succession planning perspective which i think it certainly is a necessary task for any modern political party for its own survival itini udm well people usually ask that question they like that question but they forget that the fact that President Mandolo Misa is still the president of the party is an outcome of democratic processes that the party has held since it, uh, its inception. Mm. We've held uh, numerous elective congresses since then, and in all those elective congresses we have. He didn't say that he wants to continue to lead the party. We are the ones who nominated him, as you know that you get nominated, and we are the ones who also voted for him overwhelmingly to say he needs to continue to lead us into the future. Up until the members of the party feel otherwise or decide otherwise or the president decides that he wants to, uh, to retire, then he continues to be the president of the party. But I think what is more important is around your question to say succession planning. If mm. there was no proper su succession planning in the UDM, I don't think you'd be talking to a deputy president who is in his late 30s. Mm. Uh, you'd be talking to other senior citizens. But I think in the party in general, you have other... Uh, very good and, uh, and and great young leaders, for example, who are uh, being given an opportunity to showcase their leadership capabilities. You have the likes of Yongama Lavet, you have the likes of uh, Masono Abengawe, and so on. There are many other young leaders who are being allowed to actually show what they are capable of. In, even if you were to go to the Eastern Cape, for example, the chief whip of the UDM in the Western Cape, in the Eastern Cape, rather, in the provincial legislature is Tandom Pulu, who is also another outstanding leader. So we have many other outstanding leaders in the party who are being groomed for uh, when the time, for example, for the senior leadership to hand over the baton to us uh, mm. to ensure that we are ready.
Okay. Let's take a look now at uh, some of your economic policy. I, I'm quite interested, uh, you know, certainly as a social democratic party in uh, your formulation here of uh, returning the VAT rate from uh, the uh, one percentage point rise that we saw uh, last year in the February budget uh, back to 14%. And you also want to increase uh, uh, some of the corporate income taxes to 29%. Uh, have you considered maybe how much you'd be able to collect if indeed you are able to implement this approach? And if indeed you have, how much is it? Well, the first thing you must you must understand, let's start by giving a bit of context to what is happening. Mm. If you were to look at uh, uh, value-added tax, for example, it contributes more money to the fiscus than is your, uh, your corporate income tax, mm. uh, for instance. Indeed. It contributes more money. It even contributes more money uh, than... Uh, it, it's, it's actually second after your personal income tax. Mm. Now, the challenge you have in South Africa is that if you're saying you have poor people, for an example, but you, also, you take more money from the poor in order to finance your fiscus or your expenditure needs as a country, there's something wrong with that. I have the statistics, for an example, in front of me. Personal income tax contributes 552 billion rands, mm. right? That's personal income tax. And you have value-added tax, which contributes about 360 billion rands to the fiscus. Consider then... How much of that, uh, how much comes from corporate income tax is 229 billion rands. Now it means that now what's happening is that the tax burden in South Africa is carried by private individuals. That's the starting mm. point, right? Instead of saying that it should be the corporate income tax, that's where we come from. Now consider if you were tweak it, to tweak it around and change it and say, because if you continue to have value-added tax that contributes even more than corporate income tax, it means what you are doing is you are balancing your budget on the backs of the poor because of the regressive nature of value-added sure. tax. Mm. Now, logically then, it means that you should be, if you are saying your policies are redistributive, they try to take income from the rich and give them to the poor because you're a social democratic party, naturally what you should be doing is you should be targeting your corporate income tax and probably trying to introduce wealth tax. I want to say something else mm. in addition to that. The, co the Congress Budget Office, which is the parliamentary budget office in America, conducted a study and looked at the, at the tax regimes of different countries, and South Africa happened to be one of them. And they said, if you were to consider that your corporate income tax rate is about 28% here in South Africa, right? Mm. But if you are now to consider, factor in all the measures that they use, account for depreciation, tax avoidance All the schemes, other incentives, yeah. yeah. Their mm. effective corporate income tax rate, they put it at 19%. Yeah. Right? As opposed to what we're paying as private individuals. Those things have to be addressed firstly in mm. order for you. We said when it was still, I want to make, give you another example. When it was still unpopular, in fact, we're the first political party to say, do away with these provinces where you waste a lot of money on compensation of employees and administration mm. so that you can have money for service delivery. General Olomisa and the UGM, they used to say that as far back, I was still in the African National Congress, in fact, at the time. We had to try and come up with counter proposals to that. Now, imagine if you were to introduce increased corporate income tax, reduce VAT, for instance, do away with provinces, how much money would you be able to get into the system in mm. order to be able to channel it towards service delivery in the country? Okay.
So, so you share a similar view, certainly, on this question of federalism versus a unitary state uh, with, I guess, uh, what the EFF has called for and other organizations like the uh, Azania you People's You should be saying it's the other way around. The <laughs> EFF shares a similar view with the UDM because we started it while they okay. were still in the ANC. <laughs> yes, start. Let's come back to, to uh, another issue here related, of course, to, to your economic policy plan. You, you've for many years called for an economic CODESA. Uh, you felt that certainly the negotiating platform that CODESA was in the 90s uh, probably didn't touch enough on the economic questions and maybe we need to come back to that kind of national level dialogue uh, and, and many people would say but we've had all manner of summits I mean uh, certainly uh, Cyril Ramaphosa has been framed as uh, you know the summit president jobs investment summit uh, and uh, uh, do you feel that those two summits probably were insufficient for the task that you would give to an economic CODESA? Well uh, I, I'm not convinced we are not convinced from where we're sitting that the summits that took place were all inclusive and there were any tangible resolutions that came out of them mm. for in order for us as uh, the different political institutions say you you have the different arms of the state in order for them to be able to say effectively that they're implementing certain resolutions out of those summits from where i'm sitting i think especially the investment summit in particular was a pr exercise by President Zil Ramaphosa. It became a fundraising event. It did not talk concretely about how to solve, to create. Remember, our own economic Odessa, we're talking about developing a blueprint, an economic blueprint for the country. Uh, if a, an ANC person can come to me and say, after the investment summit, they came out with, a, with an economic blueprint, then I will resign tomorrow. All that happened was that they, it was a fundraising event where we said 200 and something billion rands has been pledged as in people who are going to invest into the economy, but they have not actually kept track to say how much of that has actually been invested in the economy, right? But it did not discuss economic issues, the macroeconomic policy of the country to say how do we turn the country around from an economic perspective, what would be the pillars of such an economic strategy so that that economic strategy can then take us forward. Because the challenge you have in South Africa, for instance, we started with RDP mm. and then after RDP it was gear, there was Asgisa, there was NGP, there was... And if, people have even forgotten about the, uh, the National Development Plan. Now we're talking about radical economic transformation and 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 radical economic transformation is not even properly explained by the same very African National Congress that mm. is implementing it to say this is a blueprint for radical economic transformation. So we're saying as the UDM, it's time for us to actually sit down and come up with an economic blueprint for the country. Okay. Now, uh, also, I mean, I, I guess there are economic ideas uh, elsewhere in your uh, manifesto that uh, one would think you would bring and place on the table at that economic codessa. Uh, and uh, I want us to maybe touch on some of these. On uh, the question of rural revitalization, Nitinifunu we see irrigation schemes, uh, which uh, you argue have been neglected, and also undertake some research around catchment area, uh, and then of course also um, create some tax incentives for businesses uh, that are going to invest in opening factories close to where rural people are, and in many of the tier two cities and towns, so that you can stem a rapid urbanisation. How does that chime in, I guess, with uh, your perspectives on the land question, and even uh, what we spoke about earlier on when it comes to corporate income taxes? Well, let's start to say what you've touched on briefly there is our industrial strategy. Okay. Uh, to say, if you were to consider what has happened in South Africa over the past few years, uh, I want to give you an example that your manufacturing sector in South Africa, for instance, only contributes about 14% of GDP, as opposed to the 20% of GDP it used to contribute in 1994. 
In fact, even the the apartheid government rather performed much better than we are, than the ANC government on this score because in the 80s the manufacturing sector used to contribute about 27% of GDP. What is the problem? The problem is that we have not come up with our own industrial strategy that is going to help South Africa to be able to say, number one, we have to produce things even that we consume, but also be able to con- produce a surplus that we can export to the rest of the world. Mm. The IPAP is not enough? Uh, no, think? it's not enough. Mm, okay. it's, it's not enough. I've sat in that, in that committee. But you see, the other problem is that the targeted incentives we should be put in place. Remember, the problem started in 1994 mm. when, 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 when the ANC government was over-enthusiastic at the time. They liberalized the markets to say it's fine, we can accept imports. They did not even support textile industries mm. at the time. Sure. They took away all the support, the protection that was in place in order to ensure that it was able to compete with the international community. And that has wiped up this, that sector, including jobs in that particular sector. That is number one. Mm. The other issue that we think is very important is better alignment in South Africa between monetary policy and your fiscal policy. Mm. I want to hear you out on that one. Uh, uh, so, so on the monetary policy front, how do you think that alignment should happen? And uh, uh, does that, uh, I guess, chime up with the current mandate of, of, of the South African Reserve Bank? Remember, the mandate, mandate of the central bank is, in, is captured in, in Section 224 of the Constitution, which mm. is about price stability. But from where we're sitting, what is lacking in that mandate is that it does not um, say anything about socioeconomic development challenges that face the country. In the UDM, we've, we've always said that the issue about the central bank, yes, it is, it is, it is, it is it's, it's, its independence only goes as so, in so far as uh, when it comes to instrument mm. independence. The instruments that it can use to achieve whatever goal that we, the politicians and the government of the day, in consultation obviously with the central bank, have set as an objective for the bank to achieve. So this thing to say this absolute independence of the Reserve Bank is absolute nonsense, a misunderstanding of how the system works. Mm. The second question is that, now if you're not happy with the goal that we have set ourselves, say inflation targeting, which was set by Trevor Manuel in 2000, February, etc., to say it's going to be 3 to 6%, and at the time when it was set, it was not even scientific, by the way. Uh, there were a lot of guesstimates that took place at the time. Now, if you're not happy with the target, and if you're not happy with it, first do something about this goal you, you have set for the central bank mm. before you want to interfere with its operational issues to say uh, you want to interfere with its operational independence because the central bank is pushing back saying our mandate in terms of the constitution is about price stability, number one, but you've also set for us an, an inflation target of 3 to 6%. We are going to do and use whatever... Uh, instrument that mm. is available at our disposal in order to make sure that we achieve that objective because you use that as a performance indicator for us. Now, if you're not happy about the goals you've set for yourselves, you politicians must go back, sit around the table and say, what kind of monetary policy regime do you want to have in place? For an example, a typical example that we've made as a proposal as the UDM was to say, it's fine to have a 3 to 6% inflation target, inflation target rather, mm. right? But maybe what we should do is to do something that Brazil had done in the past where they introduced a tolerant interval. 
to mm. say in times when the economy is not doing very well, your tolerance interval would be 1% to 2%. So in a way, it's a so, multiple target. You're not just uh, targeting price stability, but you're saying there are other variables that we want but to But you also well. need mm. to, to target socio-economic development objectives, sure, such, sure. such as job creation. I mean, the, the, the Federal Reserve Bank in America does that. It has to consider what uh, whether employment is increased or reduced before they touch the interest rates or before they do any quantitative easing. They will also consider other socio-economic development objectives. Ours, even when you read the central bank reports, for example, their quarterly bulletins, there's an overemphasis on inflation. Mm. Right? There's, there's an overemphasis on inflation. They never really look at what is happening at a socio-economic development perspective. But even if they do, it's an afterthought. Read the, the same document produced by the Federal Reserve Bank. You'll see that they'll, they'll, there's an overemphasis or focus on, on socio-economic development objectives. Mm. Now, now, I mean, I, I really find that quite interesting uh, that you mention it like that. Uh, and because on the one hand, you're speaking about the monetary policy and how it must chime in with, uh, I guess, your other objectives from a fiscal end, and uh, which is a very current debate now. But from a fiscal policy perspective, um, you know, how do you envisage, I, I guess, getting South Africa out of uh, uh, the budgetary crises that we have? And of course, uh, what many people have suggested is an unsustainable debt level. I, I, I tend to disagree with that uh, if you look at and you compare us with many other emerging markets. But what is the UDM perspective when it comes to fiscal uh, policy, plugging budget and uh, uh, current account deficits? And of course, also, uh, uh, you've already touched on the taxation side of things, but I'm also interested uh, in uh, not only the collection side, but also in how you're going to spend uh, some of the, the money that you collect. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me close the circle before I answer your question. Mm. Let me close the circle on the point we're trying to make about better alignment between fiscal and monetary sure. policy. For instance, you... A government would say the economy is in recession and embark on a counter-cyclical fiscal policy mm. to try and stimulate the economic activity, right? To say we want growth. And, and, and the central bank, uh, because the inflation rate has increased slightly, even though, even, though, even though it hasn't reached the upper bend of the target, what they would do is they would go the opposite direction and increase the interest rate, right? Now, if, 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 if we understand the overall strategy of where we want to go, especially in times when the economy is, re- is in recession, there should be consideration of that, especially by central bankers uh, when they make decisions about interest mm. rates. But the other issue here, moving away from that point swiftly so that we, I, I come sure. and respond to your question, is to say, if you, if you l- let, me, let me put one per- issue into perspective. We need to quickly check in with a break now. And let's all show uh, we'll take the break. We'll take the break. We'll come back. I've got one of our callers on the line. Uh, uh, they'll pose the question, and then thereafter, uh, you can complete the point that you're making. Okay. Fi- on this Easter Monday, I'm in conversation with the United Democratic Movement, uh, uh, with their Deputy President, and Abayomzi Kwangwa, and uh, I'd love to hear your perspectives uh, on uh, uh, some of the electoral commitments of the UDM. Give me a ring on 89 uh, We've touched on uh, much of the economic policy uh, matters. We'll come back to uh, some of the other pressing issues, but uh, uh, before we go there, uh, General Tekis was on the line and uh, would like to uh, engage us. Uh, Good evening to you, General. Good evening to you and the listeners and my question today is only on two issues that okay. are banning me as a South African citizen. The role of uh, the faith-based organizations, what are the plans of the UDM? And the last one is what are the plans for, in, uh, for the youth development and to feed young people in the economic sector as the UDM? Thank you. General, thank you for that. Uh, uh, Chawi? 
Chawa, the first one. Klesibe. Uh, uh, Mamela, the first one. Let's let's start talk about the second one firstly, because I think mm. it's very important that if you look at the youth unemployment rate in South Africa, firstly, you consider that it's 52.7% if you were to consider the last report of state's essay on this issue. But if you were to look at other credible and reputable international publications, they actually put the figure at 57%. And they continue with the line to say that we have the highest youth unemployment rate in the world. The problem in South Africa is that uh, we, 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 we tend to get used to sort of the new normal. You have a crisis of an unemployment rate of 50, 57% of young people, for example, in South Africa, but it's business and as usual. There are no direct interventions that are made in the economy, for example, by government, which is what we we'll do as the UDM government to say, firstly, you need to stimulate and try to provide more support to the informal sector of the economy so that you can create jobs using that. But the second issue would have to do with small business development right providing seed capital funding but mm. a more medium to long term uh, strategy to addressing the youth unemployment crisis is to say that you have to to try and put mechanisms in place where you can address the mis- mismatch to some extent that exists between what the economy requires mm. and the skills that the private uh, the, uh, rather uh, the education sector sure tends to churn out on a daily basis because if you are able to address that in the medium to long term you'll be able to reduce the youth unemployment rate Mm. but it also means that you need to improve the quality of education system but we don't want to um, create a a group of young people who are employment seekers rather than employment creators themselves which is why we're saying focus on your small business development strategy look when you are going back to the industrial strategy even the the black industrialist program you don't see results or tangible results there these are things that you have to try and transform look when it comes to the religious sector you treat it the same way that you treat other stakeholders like your traditional sector for example your traditional leaders and other stakeholders where you have to consult with them and work with them in in any matter that concerns them but remember we we are also proponents of the right to freedom of religion or belief which is article 18 of the universal declaration of human rights Mm. as a party but we will say we say to them that when we work with them with this framework of rights including the african charter you want those leaders to be able to decide as to what kind of institutions they want to build, including the regulation of that sector. Because the question links directly to what you were discussing in the, uh, discussing in the previous segment, to say, how do you work and how do you deal with that sector? It's, it's working with mm. the leadership to say, what are the best solutions for that sector sure. as proposed by the leaders of that sector themselves? Now, uh, uh, I know you were touching on a point before we had to go to the break on uh, fiscal policy, and I'd like you to make it uh, uh, just a brief because uh, there are a few other issues I want us to touch on. That high-speed train. But uh, let's touch on uh, maybe on some of your expenditure priorities of a UDM government uh, from a fiscal policy perspective. No, we said, for example, we're we're still talking about that industrial policy where we said one of the things that we'll do almost immediately as soon as we get into government would, would be to try and rebalance trade between South Africa and its major trading partners. Mm. And the biggest and the most important starting point for us would be to consider what happens between South Africa and BRICS, for example. If one were to consider a re- report released recently by Deloitte, for example, what you saw, Deloitte and Tushde, what you saw is that uh, over the past il- uh, 15 or 16 years, from 2001 to about 2015, 2016, 
trade between the two countries went the opposite direction. For example, what we've done is that trade in raw material exports increased over that period from 34% to 74% to 70%, right? And then if you were to consider trade in manufactured goods in that very same period, 2001 to 2016, it, it actually dropped from about 41 to 24%. Mm. What does it say? It, say that, it says that we have a problem in South Africa where we produce things and take them to other people for them to finish and sell them back to us. But we are not also moving up the value chain. These are strategies where if you have an industrial strategy that says you are going to also create markets, for example, for our people, for the produce that they mm. do in the country, you would be able to grow the economy because you'd, you'd de- develop a system of industrial financing and incentives and support, for example, for those who export goods to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, sh- sh- shift uh, a gear here slightly and uh, I want to hear you out uh, on uh, some of the things that you are proposing in the urban context. And uh, you're saying, yes, when it comes to the land issue, uh, you believe this matter can be resolved through the economic endeavor that we've spoken about. But certainly from a social infrastructure and a transport perspective, you, you want to explore the possibility possibility of having an intercity high-speed rail system. No, look, the, the problem is that uh, uh, our issue firstly is that you find that the, the kind of system or rail systems that are used, for example, if you are looking at the dilapidated one, recently even President Cyril Ramaphosa, I think, took two hours. Was, was Did it delay for two to three hours or something like that? Uh, with the with the current trains that you are using, it's almost like you're only targeting when it comes to uh, your high end of the market, like your your how train. You're only targeting the rich instead of making sure that you can subsidize a high speed train, sim with similar quality and similar everything with the how train, but do so with the focus of trying to ensure that it's 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 poor people who are able to access it, so that you can uh, reduce the time, for example, that they spend on trains when traveling to work. We're also considering issues such as here, uh, you have high incidence of late coming and absenteeism, which are called by, caused by the delays in these current trends. But you're also doing it as a way of trying to connect uh, areas that you would consider to be peri-urban and your so-called urban areas. It's not a long-term solution, obviously, to the challenge because the challenge is about addressing the settlement issues, for example, separate development issues. Sure. To say people need to move closer to places of work, but in the meantime build and ca- try to come up with facilities that will make it easier for them to access cities and to, to do so in style and to do so in the same system mm. that your middle-income and high-income people do. Yeah, Interesting idea that you've come up with here on the educational front, and you touched on it earlier on when uh, you were speaking about the mismatch uh, between the skills that are demanded by, I guess, labor-absorbing industry in the economy vis-a-vis the skills that are coming out of the education system. You've said, from a curriculum perspective, you want to set up a permanent board or commission on education. What is this commission going to be charged with? No, remember, the commission on education would look at a number of issues. One, firstly, you have uh, the, 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 the... governance. What do you call them again? The SGBs. Yes. The SGBs which have become dysfunctional, but you, what, what also happens there is that there's a deployment of ANC people in the SGBs instead of them focusing on whether the school system is able to function properly. Mm. It would be also to be, to be able to check whether in terms of the schools that we have in the country and whether in terms of the different regions, whether the different, for example, minimum norms and standards that had been set in the past have been achieved when it comes to other schools around the country, for instance. You will recall that the targets that they had set for themselves 
as the ANC government for minimum norms and standards. They've actually missed all of them, without mm. exception. But there are also issues, if you were to consider, in some of the schools, especially the math schools in the Eastern Cape and, and other rural provinces like Limpopo. I was told when I was doing constituency work in the area that what happens is that a math school, for example, is then identified by government to say this is a math school, mm. it's going to be rebuilt or renovated over the next couple of years, and the time frame is then given. And then what they do is they give people 100,000 uh, rents grant to say, use the grant to build one or two, three classrooms, which are also very extremely tiny because mm. you can imagine what uh, the quality sure. of uh, classrooms that you can build with 100,000. Mm. And as soon as they've used the money to build the school, guess what happens? Then they get taken off the list of yeah. my school schools. Chow, they are told that you are no longer in my school. Let's pause yes. there. But uh, so when we come back, uh, let's continue on that uh, vein of education and uh, talking about the tasks of that uh, permanent commission and also uh, that interesting idea on savings accounts. Mm-hmm. I'm in conversation with Ngabayomzi Kwangwa. He's the deputy president of the United Democratic Movement and also a member of parliament and chief whip for the organization. Now, uh, Chawa, before we went to the break, you were talking about the tasks of this uh, permanent commission on education, and you're yes. touching on the issue of the minimum standards. So just maybe uh, unpack what some of the other uh, functions of this uh, commission would but be. But it would be to consider, I think more importantly, it would be the broad framework around uh, policies, basically, when mm. it comes to education. Remember, I think what is important in South Africa is that even our education system, what we're trying to address here is the same problem that you find on the economic front where the, as soon as you change a minister, then the policy changes. If it's not uh, curriculum 2000 because the minister is so-and-so, as soon as another minister comes in, there'll be someone, something else uh, called or named by that minister as a different curriculum. So we're saying if you're able to decide, de- decide what the policies are and what your framework is going to be going forward when it comes to education, it doesn't matter who becomes the minister after three, five years. You have, different, uh, you have a set of standards that you know that you are going to follow, mm. including those minimum norms and standards, which are part and parcel of an important policy by government, which are not being implemented or adhered to. Mm. You've also suggested here in uh, your uh, electoral uh, manifesto, or the set of promises that you've laid out here, that you want to create a savings account system uh, for Abazal Bawandwana who are attending no-fee schools, and uh, uh, the contributions would come from the private and the public sector. How this would work, and uh, moreover, who would, I guess, oversee this particular process? It would obviously be a UDM government that would oversee that. Remember, the, the, the no-fee schools, the savings account would be intended to ensure that it's, it's a, it would be a fundraising mechanism mm. into which uh, the private sector in particular would be called upon to make contributions because the no-fee schools experience a number of challenges at times which the government is not able to address by just relying on the fiscus. Now what you want is to be able to meet the needs not only of the learners firstly but at the same time to be able to say in some of the resource constraints that those schools face what is it that we can use especially getting resources from the private sector in order to plug, plug that resource gap. So we're saying it's it's a partnership because remember in our case it's always about working together with different stakeholders mm. but also finding a role for the various stakeholders to play in whatever setup we have. So it is to say that sure. if you can partner with us in the economic setup when we're trying to address the economic ills of the of the country, why can't you then also partner with us when it comes to addressing the most important thing which will ensure the success of South Africa sure. in the long term when it comes to the education system? Mm. Uescom, we have always said uh, that firstly the issue for us in the UDM primarily 
has to do with the quality of the leaders and the cadres that are being deployed by the ANC in ESCOM and any SOE, first and foremost, let's say that. Because we've always said that we're against cadre deployment. Mm. If competent people had been put in charge of ESCOM, we would not be sitting where we are today. There would be no looting of state resources. We said that the proposal to unbundle ESCOM were going to look at it and scrutinize it properly and see that we want to make sure that what usually happens in government is that a few individuals who are politically connected will occupy senior position. Mm. They mess up organizations sure. and important institutions such as ESCOM, but they do so at the expense of the workers because all that happens is that they get redeployed and then someone else comes in and the workers get laid off. If there's an intention on the part of government to try and lay off workers as they try to unbundle ESCOM, we're going to oppose that. But what we want to do is that we want to see whether there's going to be better management of these entities once they are unbundled, right? To say what is going to be the governance model of the different entities, and then we take it from there. If it's going to improve the efficiency, the operational efficiency of ESCOM, firstly, and also improve the financial performance of ESCOM because what you want is to get to a point where ESCOM becomes self-sustainable, mm. right? So that it doesn't okay. depend on government. The third aspect, obviously, for us, we've said you need to introduce other role players. Whenever you, in any sector where you have complete monopoly, you are likely to have massive inefficiencies. That's exactly what's happening in the economy right now. You should try to introduce the, the other IPPs to have a role to play in the market, but to also be able to provide electricity. We even made a proposal recently in one mm. of the debates to say maybe the independent power producers should be able to provide electricity directly to municipalities that can afford it, but regulations and laws need to be created for sure. that. Okay. I've got one of our callers there. Anthony, good evening to you. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks, Chief. How are you? I'm fine, sir. You know, uh, my brother... I've been listening to all these guys that what they are talking about, what they are saying. It, it's so painful when we listen to these parties, they don't tell us nothing about African science. I'll make an example. When, when I say African science, I'm talking about let's do science in Corsa, let's do, sure, let's sure. do things in Corsa. There is nothing that comes out of Corsa. There is no one party that mentioned that that we must do things in course aviation, whatever scientists, nuclear planning, okay. and do whatever. All right. Everything is in English. They so stick to there so much work in English. Sure. Okay, Anthony, we'll certainly pose that question to Ngabayomzi. Ngabayomzi, Nenzani Chawe in terms of Upushisa no Ilwimizetu. Well, we said it a long time ago. I think uh, at, at the time, Prof. Khanyako, the late, my, my predecessor, late Ndopile Khanyako, was the deputy president of the UDM. He used to say this because I think it's important for us that our children need to be taught in their mother tongues, especially the languages around science and other things, because I think that's a route that China took. And that's a rate we need to take in South Africa as well, because this thing of, of doing everything in English is absolute nonsense, as if... Uh, the only, but the other thing that hasn't happened, uh, you know, to complement that point is that we also need to develop African languages on the other hand. 
uh, from a scientific so that they can mm. have the necessary jargon because it doesn't help if you are going to try and introduce African languages and when you say manufacturing you are going to say manufacturer right and that's a mm. that's a challenge I think that's where that's what we need to learn especially from languages such as Africans for example that are being developed on a daily basis uh, new words and new diction is always introduced into their dictionary we don't do that for African languages mm. but we, are, we support that call it's, it's okay. indeed correct last one on my end and if I'm coping as fast what are you going to replace it with no, it's it's because of the problems that Nefsas uh, has, right? It's it's not to say we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we want to introduce a system that would work much better. Because you can't say you've introduced, you've introduced fee-free higher education system, but what you still have is that people still continue to owe money to uh, to Nefsas. You need to introduce a slightly different system to say how would you then fund free fee higher education system because what's the point of applying for a loan if we're saying it's free of charge if we are going to say if you failed or if you can't you have many people because what we're trying to address there is that you have many many young people for example who are indebted to nefsas but not only that who are who were blacklisted in the past because of nefsas now they they, they want to when they enter the job market they still not employable because of that particular reasons we are saying we are not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but we need to develop a system that's going to mu- work much better than NEFSAS and make sure that we, we are true to our promise of free fee higher education rather than uh, sugarcoating it or coming up with, with tricks that are going to mislead up the public. United Democratic Movement Deputy President Nabayomzi Kwangwa is also a member of parliament there and the chief whip joining us from our studios in Cape Town and that then ladies and gents is the final whistle for us here big thank you Jaws and Kuma for putting together this great product and of course on this evening where we celebrate the life of one Juby Mayet and we also think back on that siege on Gramstown by uh, one of the historic uh, warrior prophets uh, of our people, Makanda, uh, who attacked Gramstown on this uh, day, April 22. And uh, it marks today the bicentenary of that particular attack. And uh, of course, and I certainly hope that all of you this evening will reflect on that as we take strength and uh, have yourself a great evening.